0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Sam Hargrave, a stunt coordinator-turned-director whose credits include The Hunger Games Mockingjay, Deadpool 2, and one of the most anticipated movies of the last few years, Avengers Endgame. In our episode, we cover a wide range of topics, from his early beginnings as a stunt fan in Hollywood, working on movies like Pirates of the Caribbean, to his award-winning stunt work on Atomic Blonde with Charlize Theron, the emotional experience that was being chosen as Captain America's stunt double on the first Avengers, and how that led to his role as stunt coordinator and second unit director on Avengers Infinity War, as well as the challenges of creating action for this year's Avengers Endgame. Sam is also currently hard at work completing his directorial debut DACA, starring Chris Hemsworth, which Netflix will release early next year. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Sam, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's such a pleasure. I thought we could frame the irony of life. Avengers Endgame is about to come out next month, and you're a stunt coordinator, and you started as Spider-Man for children's birthday parties. That's true. So I think if you put your mind to it, you're the example that anything can be done. But if we do start from the beginning, I thought it would be interesting. I would love to ask you about your love for movies, mm-hmm. and specifically uh, the idea of recreating your favorite sun sequences when you're younger. The idea of learning through... Imitation, For example, the playground fight from Police Story 2, that's a great one. Even though you don't have the same level of resources, I think it's a good way to to start and learn. So we wanted to ask you about your early experiences, both in that regard and at the same time as you're starting the business in the mid-2000s. People may know that Pirates of the Caribbean 2 was one of your first big projects. Just entering the business and how the perception of what you thought was Hollywood was changing as opposed to what you thought it would be.
1: Well, let's start at the beginning. I have been influenced by movies and television since I was a wee lad. There's video footage of me at I was probably four years old imitating the Lone Ranger. And then I had the mask on, the hat, and the boots, and the guns. And I'd roll down the hill because in the the movie that I saw, he would get he got shot by the bad guy and fell down the hill. And I would imitate what I saw on movies and television so much. To the point, my mother had to edit the TV shows before I could watch them, because she didn't want me to kill my brother. Because I I would do things like I had an old uh, shed thing that we'd play in, and I had you know toy guns. And in one of the movies, one of the cowboys broke the glass to get a better shot, and so I went outside and I took my gun and I broke the glass to get a better shot. So I was imitating movies since you know the time I could walk. And then we, you know, my friends and I made that into a little bit more of an art form. We got older and we started imitating Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee, Van Damme. You know, we wanted to be like those guys. So we would um, recreate these fight scenes. And that really kind of gave me a foundation in understanding the art of filmmaking. We would do these things and often my film school experience was we would shoot things first. We'd make the mistakes and then go to class, like when I finally went to film school, and learn, like, oh, that's why it didn't work. And so we were try- always trying these things, failing a lot. But it was through trial and error, through the doing, that we learned so much. And I think that's great for young filmmakers up and coming is to just to do it. You know, studying is one thing, it's important, but you have to do it. You have to make movies to, to get good at making movies. What's funny is when I first got to L.A., Hollywood, I was surprised at how close we actually were to doing what we ultimately wanted to do. It was very rudimentary, the stunt sequences that we would do, but then I watched the people that did it. They just had more time, money, and experience. We were heading in the right direction, but then when you get on a production as big as Pirates 2 and you see the amount of money and all the resources that go into this, you think like, wow, this is the big time. This is for real. It's not like making a, you know, a, <laughs> a YouTube video in your in your garage. From the stunt side of things, I mean, it is, you are a small part of the bigger team. But in you know, every department thinks their department is the most important department. And in a way, you know, if they didn't, if you didn't have that focus, it wouldn't work as well. Your department is very important, but you have to look at the whole thing collectively and say how do I not just be the best stunt performer or best um, you know, uh, sound mixer or best wardrobe person, how do I be the best filmmaker, and know how everybody works and why they, why they do what they do, how they do it, so you can support them, because teamwork is super important in making a film. It's a very hard thing to do, it's one of the, the most difficult collaborative forms of art that there is, and so to make a good movie is super difficult, so the more you know about every department, the more helpful you can be as a filmmaker
0: before we jump into specific projects, I wanted to spend a moment talking about the work of Jackie Chan, because I know Mm. how much it influenced you. And the correlation, I think his understanding of of action and comedy and timing Uh. are the very reason 30 years later, you know, people are still enjoying it so much. It's, again, his strength, understanding visual clarity, the way he composed stunts, and just not being afraid. The same thing for Buster Keaton, we could spend hours talking about him, Performers who are not afraid of, of looking in pain because I, I think that's what creates empathy with the audience. So if we want to nerd out for a moment and talk about impressive set pieces in Jackie Chan films, how would you analyze your favorites, even if you want to just pick one, and, and why do you think his approach to stunt design is so effective?
1: For me, I enjoy humor and action, and he, I think, is a master of both. But he also cites a lot of the early Hollywood uh, filmmakers like Harold Lloyd, Buster Keaton, you know, Charlie Chaplin, as inspiration. And if you look at the it's correlations between, he would actually recreate certain stunts that they did in his films and, and try to take it a step further. I mean, it's really hard to list a favorite. You know, the clock tower fall in uh, Project A, that one was a straight ripoff of the Harold Lloyd, stunt. But he, he did it in such a way that he would put himself in positions to actually get hurt but do it anyway but that one it took him seven days to actually do that stunt
0: because he couldn't bring himself to yeah, do it yeah because
1: he would go out and hang there and be like nope bring me back in and so they wouldn't do it that was their day's work and nope wouldn't do it go back the next day it's like ah, no no I can't do it and seven days and then on the seventh day he just said alright when, when you hang me out there no matter what I say don't bring me back in and so he him hanging there until he couldn't hold anymore and then he fell and what's crazy to me about that gag is you see him fall, and in one shot, he falls, hits one awning, hits a second awning, and lands like on his head, and they don't cut, and he gets up and delivers his line, and then stumbles out of frame, like all in one. And that's, I mean, you know, don't, don't do that anymore. Nobody nobody does that. I don't even I have to watch the clock tower stunt that, that he got it from. I don't think they did that. And that's part of, when you say setting up action, you know, capturing with a camera, because... That's one of the most important things, I think, is how action is photographed and edited, because otherwise it's just bad fever.
0: There's a double agent operating in Berlin. If we don't find him before the wall falls, we could be facing World War III. Remember, trust no one. Let's talk about Atomic Blonde because there's so oh. much to break down. By the way, we had uh, uh, Elizabeth uh, Ronald Dodger on the show. Oh, great. Uh, She's we, fantastic. we spoke about you, yeah, oh, um, specifically talking about the stairwell sequence we're going to mention in a moment. Yep. But I think it's interesting to look in movies like Wick uh,
1: um.
0: and, and Atomic Blonde where you have yourself and Daniel Bernard in there as actors. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, what do you think is the benefit of having stunt performers disguised in the core cast of the movie? Because most people don't realize that, but I think it's such a smart way, because you can have people like Keanu or Charlize go at it with a professional who knows what's safe. Could you talk about, whether it's yourself or Daniel, how those conversations came to be in regards to whether they were offered to you or you trying to make a case for like, this would be a lot more effective if I, if I could do it. Yeah. There's this flip you do at the beginning of, of Atomic Blonde that just gets me every time.
1: <laughs> Good, it's, it was meant to. There's a certain stigma attached to stunt people about them not being able to act. Sometimes it's true, I mean, unfortunately but I think if you can find stunt performers who can act or actors who perform stunts, either way you look at it. I Also, that line to me is kind of very blurred because either way, as a stunt performer, you're also acting because you're portraying the character physically. Whether or not you get to say lines, you're still, if you're doubling someone, you know, like for Monique Ganderton doubling, you know, Charlize in that movie, she was the character Broughton when she was doing the action and you know a lot of times you can't tell the difference because her physical acting is so good in the case of you know giving stunt performers lines the beauty of it is for audiences nowadays they're so much more savvy i have all these behind the scenes interviews and knowledge into how things are done so they can see when you use a stunt double or when you try to hide something like that so the more you can have you know that actual character doing the action the more invested you will be in that character and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, Jackie Chan movies are so much fun to watch, why the raid did so well, is because those actors are also stunt people and martial artists and so they're doing it. And that's why, you know, Keanu Reeves and John Wick, that's why eighty seven eleven, you know, is such a, a revolutionary thing where you bring actors in way in advance, you know. For Keanu it was a lot years of experience now, but like, you know, prepping six, eight months for a role. Physically, so that they can, you know, the actors can bring a level of expertise to the physicality that usually only some people do. And Charlize trained for, I think it was six or eight weeks for her role. She was in the gym almost every day. Then that gives them the ability to kind of, uh, it's not fooling the audience because they actually know what they're doing. But you can, you know, get into this character in a way that you wouldn't be able to if you didn't put those hours of training in. The mixture of, you know, training actors to perform like stunt people. Jason Momoa is another great example, or Jason Statham, that like, trained like very physically capable, but trained like stunt people. Uh, it's great. So then, like Atomic Blonde with Daniel Bernhardt, who's an actor himself, but also a stunt person. You put that person with an actor up against an actor who has been training, and then you have the ability or the, you know, the capability f- to have magic when the action happens, because you got two really well-trained people going at it, and you don't have to hide inadequacies in cuts. You can watch them do it in these wide shots, and you can compose action how I like to see it, how they did it in you know, the Jackie Chan movies of the 80s. I think it's what Chad and Dave have done, uh, Chad Stahowski and, and Dave Leach with the John Wicks and the tonic Blondes. I will not say revolutionizing it, because it all comes kind of back around, but in this day and age, kind of going away from all the quick cuts and uh, furious pacing of editing and they kind of let shots breathe and they widen the lens a little bit and let the audience see how good these actors and performers are it's a beautiful thing for for stunt performers and for cinema in general because you can see this art form that oftentimes gets hidden with uh, a different style of editing and that's why we you know I love the those 80s action films so much' because they were featuring extremely talented martial artists and stunt people who were also acting and it's just kind of come full circle now. And the, revo- I think the revolutionary aspect is the training of really, like, Oscar-winning actors to portray these characters, these action characters, and I think that's a slam dunk uh, for, for stunts and for uh, action designers. Because it does make the job so much easier when you have someone who, not only they're, they're physically talented, but put in a lot of work and you're given the time, and then you can really show what you intended to be seen. You don't have to hide it and make a bunch of compromises.
0: And none of it is more clear in the in the famous kitchen fight. Again, we talk about, like, Jackie Chan a moment ago. It's about designing action through familiar objects. You know, you got chairs, refrigerators, ladders. You're providing a grounded sense of reality and at the same time just having so much fun with it mm-hmm. because it requires a lot more creativity. So I wanted to ask you, where would a sequence like The Kitchen rank in terms of challenges, but also opportunities among the others in a film?
1: The kitchen fight in Atomic Blonde was our Jackie Chan homage because we had an opportunity to use environmental objects as weapons. We worked backwards, which is not to say too strange, but like it started with Dave Leach, the director. He wanted the the leap off the balcony and swing underneath. That was what he wanted. He's like, how you get there? Like, I don't really, I don't really care. He's like, Is it a fire hose? Is it a piece of rope? Is it an electrical cord? I don't, I don't know. But I want something, some fight in the kitchen to end up with this happening. And so, we're like, okay. And that was about all the direction we got. So we um, we decided on a garden hose, and then worked through the house. What you know, and the kitchen makes sense because there's a lot of fun stuff in there pots and pans and kitchen knives. and But a lot of that was also character-driven because, you know, as a, as a female, it's fun because it's smart, where oftentimes if a woman and a man go strength for strength, in general, that the woman is at a disadvantage. But the reason it's so much fun is you, you can turn that into an advantage is because mentally she's like sharper than these guys so she's like how do i use my environment to give me an advantage and that was a a thing that you know we tried really hard to to push throughout the film like in the fight in the car she used her shoe or her stiletto heel and it's just about what where the character comes from what she's thinking and you know how she uses her environment to, to her advantage that was a fight and you always have one in a movie where you just go through many different versions kind of to get it right and I think we went through six or seven different versions. And you know, we'd film something, show it to, to Dave, and we'd talk about it. And he'd say, like, I like this, but you know I, I feel like we need more of this. So we'd go back and rework it. Because they haven't necessarily built the set yet, uh, which and I think Jackie Chan usually worked where they build the set and put all the props there. And he'd go in and then design stuff based on that. We would have an idea of what we wanted, but then we have to kind of, until they build the set, create our own version of it in a off-site, like a warehouse or a... You know, sometimes like a hotel uh, conference room, and usually we we'll use cardboard boxes to build the environment, and we make props out of whatever we can find. If the prop team is there, we we'll work with them, uh, but just start designing stuff and, and trying and playing. What works? Is a pan better? Is a is a rolling pin? Is it funnier? Is it does it make more sense? How do we use the refrigerator without completely copying Jackie Chan? And so we just play, and it's that's the really fun part of designing action like that is the team you work with. And so, we was really lucky to work with uh, a great team on that show. As Monique Ganderting, Greg Raimentor, Daniel Hargrave, Bernhard was there, John Valera, and all the you know Hungarian stunt guys. But it's all about synergy. When you try, or I try to c- pull a team onto a show, who's going to work together with positive energy? It's like improv. It's like a yes and attitude, not like well t- that's never going to work, and that just kills the creative energy. But if somebody's like, oh, what if we use this? Like yes. And what if she has the lamp and it smashes that on his head? And we go, uh, yes, I like that. But what if it was a guitar and she wraps the string around his neck and she's, you know, so we, it just snowballs and you get these great ideas. And then, you know, my job is kind of the overseeing that is because it'll get huge. And will be like, oh my God. All right, guys, we got to pull that back in. Less guitar. And let's bring more of a, you know, maybe it's like a whiskey glass in there. Let's try to find something that's more along the lines of the story we're trying to tell. I actually could talk for hours about any of these action sequences. That's
0: what we're here for. <laughs> Sweet dreams are made of this. Who am I to disagree? I travel the world and the seven seas. Everybody is looking for something. Some of them but it segues perfectly into the cerebral sequence because I I was wondering, how do you rehearse something like that? Because 8711, if it's something flat, I can imagine, like, you put up mats and stuff, but, like, how do you fake pendants? That
1: one we it was very interesting to design because in the script it was written as she's going up, and they're coming, she passes two assassins in a stairwell, and she shoots him and then keeps walking. And Dave was like, that's not very exciting. Let's come up with a fight. And he had found, in his early location scouts, he'd found a location that he liked. And so once we got approval, we all of a sudden team went there and saw it, and we kind of took it all in. He actually, we helped him choose because it came down to two different locations, and one was had like narrower stairwell. It was steeper and narrower. And this one, it just felt really good. It had a wide stairwell, so you could you could kind of fight on them. They weren't too steep. The steps were pretty wide. There was landings in between. This is a very beautiful building, but practical for what we were trying to do. So we went in there and saw the space. While they were dressing it, we went away and we just kind of came up with chunks of fight choreography we didn't know exactly where they would go but we liked the moves and thought this could work and because we knew we wanted to kind of do it in, you know as a quote one with a number of different stitches we made different sections I think 23 or 27 different pieces that we broke it into we'd uh, work with Shirley's and teach her those little fight beats and then we had I think it was four days they gave us to rehearse, and so we took all the doubles and the you know stunt actors. You know, we had, in addition to Daniel Bernhardt, Greg Reminter playing a role, another great stuntman, and, and my brother Daniel Hargrave. All top stuntmen, but acting in the movie, throughout the movie. So we And that was a, a Dave Leach call, too, of casting these. Instead of doubling actors, just cast the stunt people because they're good actors, which was very advantageous to the movie, I think, because you, you're not doubling them, and you see you know, just great performances all throughout. So we went in there, we had four days... You know, there were no elevators in the, that was a bit of a cheat, there were no elevators in that actual building. But we thought, gosh, it would be boring to watch her walk up, you know, six flights of stairs. And by the time she got there, she'd be tired. And so we gotta, how do we get her up there quickly? So we'll we'll just build an elevator that she walks into. That'll be one of our stitches. And so we faked the elevator, you know, and it's more fun to fight your way down because gravity's on your side. And because Tony Ja fought up, so we're gonna fight (laughs) down. So we start at the top. And then we worked our way down, and we just started playing in the space. And over the course of four days, we came up with, and I had a, you know, a camera, like I think it was a Sony A 7s or whatever the cool thing was at the time. And we we shot it. and, and you're, we, operating. Just right. so people know, you're operating, right? No, you're operating too. I well, I operated the, in, the, in the the fight biz, we call it, and then I, and in the movie, Dave leads the director, and I'm thankful that he allowed me to do it. But he's, it just makes more sense because I knew the move. I knew the fight so well. I'd rehearse the moves. I mean, there's running backwards downstairs, and it's a lot of stuff that takes a lot of practice to do. He just said it'd be faster and more efficient if I did it, and, and he was right. But we shot it, cut it together, did all the stitches, met with Dave, and he was, you know, we altered a few things, met with the DP because he's looking at the bigger picture. You know, instead of shooting this way into that flat wall, let's switch sides and shoot this way into the depth of the stairwell, which is great, but then, all right, now we got to switch sides, so he's got to fight left-handed. So, we, you know, little things, little tweaks on the day that we would do with the rest of the team and then we shot that stairwell sequence over the course of four days I think it was winter time in in Budapest so it was a real location and it was cold but it was fun it was it was one of the more up to that point or the most challenging things that I'd done which is always great because you, you'd think oh whew, it's not going to get a lot harder than that and then you do your next movie and you're like oh yep it just got harder
0: <laughs> just to like wrap up that sequence I'm curious what's your conversation like in regards to Deciding how much padding to do mm. and where to hide the padding.
1: Yeah, g- I mean, generally, like because it's kind of understanding technology and also wanting to add longevity to your performers' lives. Because <laughs> I've done it before using high-density foam and in you know, painting it to look like the set became really popular. Like I, I, was in that era, like changing era where you just you're falling on hardwood floors and concrete, and just that's what you did. And you still have to on some shows. They can't afford it necessarily on like TV shows and, and lower-budget movies. It's got to, you know, hide sun pads on your body and kind of go for it. But what it helps with, especially with actors, is it gives people the confidence to give 110 percent you know if you're supposed to be rolling around on the ground then you're say an actor and not used to it, even a stunt performer it allows you the confidence that you know it's going to lessen the fall a little bit so you actually get better performances from people when you put that little extra bit of safety in there and the beauty of technology it's a fairly easy paint out and fairly inexpensive to to make it look like the real environment so we pretty much decided anywhere they were going to fall or fight or roll around we we're gonna pad it. You know, we built an entire flight of stairs to pad, and then you know, I think two two landings. So at any one time, because of these long shots, we'd have actually two flights of stairs and one landing, padded, and the walls. Most of that set was pretty pretty safely, you know, padded, but you can't really tell in the movie, and it looks I can super tell. hard. You know,
0: Honestly, good tell. Good um, I success. We need to deal with this now, or we'll never get across. I don't want to die. You're not going to die. Stay here. Oh, What I love the most about the sequence, too, is that by the time you get in the room with, with Bernard, mm-hmm. they are so tired.
1: Yeah. We wanted to stay true to the realism of, like, if, if anybody, like, even, you know, you watch the UFC, which is so, you know, mainstream now. If you fight for, like, a, a five-minute round, I don't care how much you train for that, you're going to be tired. It's, it's hard. There's a lot of physical exertion. So we wanted to kind of be true to that because the motto for, for Dave and for us was real action, real consequences. So if you're fighting up and downstairs and you're getting hit in the face with a bag of guns whatever, you're not going to be functioning at 100%. When by the time, you you know, five minutes passes, you're going to be fatigued. And so we tried to keep track of the physical damage throughout the fight so it's not like a fresh faced you know, person is like, all right, here's the next fight. I know like, it's part of a much longer, arduous journey that the character has to fight through and is taking its toll. And the reason, you know, she prevails is not because she's necessarily bigger, faster, or stronger. She's just tougher. She just wants it more. And so she just perseveres and just grits her teeth and, and wins which is part of the fun. It's like it's... Because that's something that can, people can identify with. It's like, oh, I'll never be that skilled. It's like, but you can always be that tough. Like, you can just, just never give up and push through it, like, which thing, which she did, and that was the cool thing about that character.
0: And I agree. You appreciate characters more for trying than yeah. actually succeeding. Uh, my last question about Atomic One, you go outside and I was fascinated by the car rig you guys have mm-hmm. right after that. Well, mm-hmm. From my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. you have two some drivers on either end mm-hmm. so that the car goes and at one point I think she stops and she starts reversing. And I know there's a little green screen in there, but I'm not as interested in that as I am about, if, if you could talk about the practicality of shooting on location and just car, car work there.
1: Yeah, that was that was actually probably the hardest part of the sequence because we only had two days to shoot the, that. It was cold. It was wintertime. At least in the building, you're out of the wind and out of the elements. We were outside on the streets and it was so cold. But it was the same rig. We actually found the, the team that did the car rig for children of men. So that same rig, that they skin the top of the car and build this, it's huge, and elaborate dolly track, basically, a camera track on the top of the car, and the camera's under as long, and it's by remote, and it works. Together. you got pan and tilt and put the forward and back. It's on a circular track. And because we wanted to have control and you couldn't see you know, the drivers, we had a, a called the pod car where we you take the vehicle and put it on top of this car, which is very low to the ground. It was only one driver, but at any time you could have the driver in three different positions. You could have them, if we were looking forward, you could have them driving from behind the car, especially if we we're reversing. You could have them in front of the car or on top. Usually there was a, a driver on top, so you could see the road and go forward or backwards. The guy on the wheels, the camera operator and I, were in the basically the, the boot of the car. We were laying down underneath and these racing seats were kind of reclined underneath the car and I had the monitor and I had two radios because I'm cueing the actors in the car and the cars on the street because there was when the camera moves around I'd have to cue uh, you know Charlize to you know duck because when she's driving she has to stay in there and not look at the camera but as it comes around say like pass behind her and get a shot of Eddie as you know Martin but he's in the she has to recline her seat and lay out of the way of the camera as it goes over her head so it sees Eddie does his thing, and then it goes back and like sit up. You have to sit up at the right time. So coordinating all that stuff while driving down the street at you know 30 miles an hour was that uh, was tricky, especially when you couldn't feel your hands because it's so cold outside. And you're like, ah, you know which radio was which? Who did I just talk to? And so we, you know, it was it was maddening. But the reason I think it went so well is because, and this is true for anything, is the motto that I had developed through the years is fix it and prep. So you have to that, that sequence would never be possible without extensive rehearsals, just like the the four days we had inside the stairwell for the, to get the fights how we wanted it. We had uh, two days out on a an old um, it was in a little landing field, like an airport where we we had i mean down to the exact measurements of the street, the width of the street, the length of the runs, we measured it out with cones and tape and had all the vehicles there, and the same rig and we just, we practiced all of the moves, you know, with with stunt doubles and and doing just, we worked on all the mechanics so that there was nothing, no surprises on the the technical side of things. We had to explain and rehearse on the the day with actors because they were shooting other scenes while we did that, but at least all of the technical stuff was worked out and that's where you save a lot of time and money and that's where I, what I always try to push for is rehearsal time, because when you don't get it, it can really eat into the effectiveness of your shoot because you get kind of lost and you, you know spinning wheels but if you, you know ahead of time what you're trying to do and you, you work out all the technical stuff then it really makes the, the shoot go much smoother fix it in prep
0: before I briefly ask you about Avengers I, I want to to inquire about the concept of like delivering under pressure. you know, For anyone listening out there, you probably think that stunt design, it's about being cool and dangerous, but it's really about being methodical and extremely careful. And I can imagine, not only you're scheduling high stakes stunts with a limited time, and sometimes you have, depending on the show, you can have a producer that's breathing down your neck and it's like, I want it, we gotta get it. So has a stunt ever been too dangerous or not well re- rehearsed enough to perform? And how, for you as a stunt coordinator, when do you make the call of like, you know what, I know we're out of time, I know we are got to go, 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 but it's, I do not feel safe having myself or my guys or girls go in there and do it.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a I mean, I've only been in that situation a couple of times. It's a, it's, a, it's a judgment call, and it's, a, it's an important one. And I, I try to always err on the side of being safe, and I, you know, different personalities work different ways. When it comes down to something I feel strongly about, which is safety, I have no problem saying that's it, not going to happen. It's not. We're not ready, or it's not safe. And if you can do whatever you want, you can fire me. I don't. I don't care. We're not going to do something that's not you know safe or rehearsed. And I learned. I've learned that the hard way, um, being on other shows where I've seen that go wrong, where a similar situation would occur, where you've got uh, a sequence being set up where you, you know, a certain stunt was rehearsed, but then you know somebody wanted to change something. And, you know, instead of having kind of, I not want to say confidence, but kind of, the, the confidence to say, no, we can't do that, or yes, we can, but it's going to take X number, you know, minutes or hours to re-rehearse it so that we have it safely down. And so that didn't happen, and, you know, went ahead anyway, and one of the people performing got seriously injured. And so that really kind of hammered it home to me. you got to set yourself up to succeed, so you don't put anybody in a situation where they're you know, going to fail that being said, there's a reason why stunt performers exist, and why you get paid what they get paid, is because it's it is inherently dangerous. You can't always prevent everything from going wrong. For you could rehearse a car hit, for example, as much as you want, but at a certain point, somebody has to step out in front of that car and get hit, and you, you can't do it for them. If if you're coordinating, that's one. Of, it's actually for me much harder to watch a stunt being performed than it is to do it. Because in the doing of it, I'm I'm there and I'm completely. I mean, I've gone through all the scenarios of what could go wrong, and just kind of visualize those. Like, okay, now eliminate those and focus on what you have to do to get it right. So your focus is much more narrow. When you know, but then when you're setting it up or watching someone else perform it, you're like, have they gone through this same process? Like, are they actually ready? They're saying they're ready, but it's a, it's a feeling thing. Like I've I've had people where I you know they go up say, are you, are you good to go? And you'll there'll be a hesitation and they'll be like. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. It's like, well, you, yeah, but are you actually, like, tell you what, why don't we just do another rehearsal till you're fully comfortable? And that's where it's really a, it's a lot of the energy readings off people, like your performers, and saying, like, are they actually ready? You want to try your best to hire somebody or, because, again, you want to put everybody in a position to succeed. So you don't want to give someone the job or put them in a spot where they're not good at it or familiar with it but at the same time sometimes you you got to give somebody their first chance to do something so that it's a very um, fine line between pushing someone to try something new in a safe way and saying you're not quite ready to do that safely i got to i got to pull you out but i've had even on in, in infinity wars i mean there were times where things changed quickly in that environment we have stunts all set up and then it's like ah, now we want to put the camera over here or we'd like a different thing to happen and i say no problem we got to re-rehearse it so it's going to be a whatever it's going to be an hour if you can you know wait in the hour we'll change it if you can't this is how it's going to be and then it's their choice like you don't you know what i want to say no like no i can't do it it's like i can it's just going to take this much time we can get you whatever you want it's just time and money and then you get to the person you know in charge, like your boss the director or producer gets to make that choice they're just not going to make the choice to do something unsafe. You just don't give them that option. No. So you say, well, "Yes, we can do this change. We're going to take this much time to make it safe and make it right, or it's going to be the same as we rehearsed it." So you just got to draw the line when it comes to safety.
0: And I bet your heart is beating extra fast if you're working, you know, with a partner, with a brother, or anything like that. Oh
1: yeah, I mean, I kind of—I won't say famously, but notoriously—I in one one film put my my best friend, my brother, and you know, my girlfriend at the time all together in a stunt where they were. Dropping 500 feet, you know, from on a on a on a cable down through the center of this building, and they're like, "Do you do you have a problem like with people that you care about putting them in dangerous?" scenarios. I said, "No, actually, the reason they're there is because I know I can trust them. I know they're not gonna you know fuck it up." Now there's other elements involved like the rigging and stuff, but the, I trust them completely. 100. So it's actually. I worried a lot less than if I, you know, I had a couple of new people up there, and that made me more nervous because I wasn't sure of their abilities. But I know, you know with my brother, with with Monique, and with uh you know, Thayer Harris, they're they're not gonna, they're the best performers, you know, out there. So I'm not gonna have a problem with them. They're they're gonna be okay. They're gonna do their job. It's just the the people that I'm not quite as sure about actually makes me more nervous.
0: But again, it's part of the job. It's, you know, marrying the right performer for the right stunt. So let me ask you about Avengers, and I I wanted to begin by asking about just a concept of choosing projects for yourself. I find very interesting, you know? And at the time, I, I did some research and at the time it sounds like in 2011 you had a choice between working on The Dark Knight Rises oh. or doubling for Chris Evans on Avengers 1 and eventually by the way obviously people should know that uh, you went with Avengers and you had yeah. this to say about it quote there was more room for growth both for the character and for myself as a performer." And I think the choice ended up being the right one. Close quote.
1: That's a good quote. That's, that's, that's good. a really good quote. Good.
0: Um, so how do you go about choosing projects, and, and what did the first Avenger film teach you about yourself as a stunt performer? Mm,
1: that is a loaded question. At different stages of your career, you're choosing project, different projects for different reasons. Like in the first early stages of your career, You're taking any project that is going to allow you to show off your skills and is going to pay you. I mean, I've done movies called Roadhouse 2. Like, it doesn't matter. you just, I'll do do it. Then, when you get to, you know, you get a little more established, your skills are kind of um, improving, and you get to the kind of, I don't say peaking, but kind of where you're at the top of your game as a performer, then you oftentimes get options because a lot of people want you know want to use you for different projects and want the skills that you provide so at that time there were a lot of different people calling me for different jobs we call it high class problems because you're like oh, gosh which do I choose to be Batman or be captain America boo-hoo right like feel so sorry for you like you say like, oh man what do I do screw you man like you can't go wrong which is true but the funny thing is it's actually it's a very difficult kind of stressful time because it this choices do affect your career and the path that you end up following. So in that kind of scenario and I factored in you know the teams that I would be working with and this is just my little aside of how I make those decisions. I'll make a pros and cons list you know right on a piece of paper all the things that are positive about the project, all the negatives list as many as I can and then you sit with it for a couple of days and you just get quiet and and you think about the project and then kind of base it on a feeling what if you think about it, because usually you know you can talk yourself in or out of anything logically but there's like a feeling that usually is associated with things that you can't really avoid and if you get quiet and listen to your body you'll know and so I did that and you know a lot of the factors were you know how long I'd be away from you know friends and family the team I'd be working with also, the, you know that was the lat the third of the Nolan trilogy, and it was the first Avengers movie. Only the second one, you know, Cap had been in, but the first Avengers movie just room for growth because it's a new newer franchise, whereas but the Batman franchise with Nolan was kind of winding down. But it was really tough because I'd always wanted to be Batman ever since I was a little kid. Like he was my favorite. Sorry, all Marvel fans and MCU. Batman was my favorite. So. I remember calling the coordinator and being like, because I had been called to do Avengers first, and you know, then Batman called, and I, we had this discussion. He's a friend of mine and a mentor, R.A. Rondell, who I've known for years, and he's been a great mentor to me throughout my film career. I was saying, oh, I feel like I, need to, like I want to do Batman. I've wanted to do this since I was a kid. He's like, well, sure, you can go do it, so long as you find someone better than yourself to replace yourself with. Wait a second, and just Jedi mind trick, me there. Cause you gotta find now. You're you're finding someone and giving them someone better than yourself. And I looked, I didn't find anybody. But I <laughs> that sounds terrible. But like for that job, like the I felt like I could do and I would give them like already like the best uh, performance. And so I was like, yeah, you know what, I'll go do it. And it's always important in this business is kind of to honor your commitments. And so since I had you know part of the the bigger picture was I had said yes to him first. He had asked first. And I said yes. And so you know instead of going back and leaving him in a tough spot if you give your word you follow through with it and do the project it, that one pushed me i mean a lot because a lot of the stunts i was asked to do were uh you know there was a one that i ended up winning two like world stunt awards for that was very um you know when you stand there and you're like we're gonna do this okay that was one ragged you know not that i wouldn't have done it it was just you're very nerve-wracking because your life it's it's a little bit on your performance, but it's mostly on the stunt riggers who are are in charge of the wires and. The... Is that the bread jump? No, that was the uh, bit when they're in the uh, the bank and the the explosion goes off and Cap jumps up, kind of hides behind his shield and blows out the Ooh, window and lands on the car. So that was you know I was standing. I think it was I forget the dimensions, but it was something like the height was twenty feet, but I traveled back twenty five feet to the car from my start point, but through. Tempered glass, which is it's real glass, and it's but blind. I was I was facing away, so I was going backwards, so I didn't know. Once you we rehearsed it, and it went you know went well. You're just trusting them to put in your mouthpiece and like take a deep breath, and when the countdown starts, once they get to go, like it's you're a puppet on a string. You can affect it a little bit, but really it's up to the the guys on the the button. But I do remember another incident that reminded me to trust my instincts, like the, like my gut was feeling. We'd rehearsed it all. <coughs> we laid out all of the like the car to this exact specification of the rehearsal but when i stood up there and looked down i just had a feeling i went to move the car in two feet and they're like two like that's crazy like we have it down to like you're landing consistently to this spot like that's a lot it's a big change and i was like i know but I'm going to move it in two feet and they're like like you're riding it okay and so no, they did. They moved it in, and it just turned out that I, if I hadn't, I would have probably, because I landed, I was almost perfectly, like torso, like right in the middle of my body on the front edge of the car. If you take two feet away from that. I'd probably landed on my legs on the front of the car, which would have been gone down to my head in front of the car. So, little things like that like it just reminded me and it was the biggest lesson on that show was just trust your your gut like if you have an instinct to change something or to to speak up don't be afraid to voice your feeling because if you don't and something goes wrong you just carry that weight and that's something i tried to like as a coordinator to tell my performers like if, if you if you have a feeling say something or even for me if someone goes like hey do you think we should put a mat down there now we have to because you put it out there in the universe of like because if you don't and we knew that was like something that somebody wanted or thought should be done and something happens then you were just negligent so it's just speak up if you feel something be like Ah, i don't you know or i want one more rehearsal that's fine like a, don't worry about the time because your life is way more important than you know us making our day so i try to instill that and in, in give performers confidence to speak up and and say hey you know I, I need one more rehearsal or i don't feel good about this and that's fine because you don't and you, ultimately i don't want people to feel bad if they don't feel good about doing a stunt say so and we'll put somebody else in there it's not there's nothing personal i'm not gonna i know there's kind of a you know a, of a stigma on you know oh you well you you were just uh, you're scared, or you're you, You backed out because you're, you know... No, if you have a feeling, like you could be the best performer in the world, but for some reason at that moment, if you're not feeling it, you got to speak up, and we can either try to make it better for you or easier, or just put somebody else in there who is feeling confident. Because it's not worth somebody getting hurt over if you're just not fully confident to to perform the stunt.
0: Realized I loved you. I know I said no more surprises, but... I was really hoping to pull off one last one.
1: The world has changed. None of us
0: can go back. All we can do is our best. And sometimes the best that we can do is to start over. So, trailer for Avengers Endgame came out this morning, mm. and I am not gonna ask you about story or plot or characters because I know I can't you can't anything, talk about no. it. So, so, I just think it's interesting because of the scope of the projects. I yeah. don't even know splinter you an additional. I can't even wrap my head around like the amount of things that there are going on. So, I was interested in asking you about we talked about rehearsal a moment ago Mm -hmm. but when you're working with all these different people how do you guys work around actor's schedule Mm -hmm. to use rehearsal time efficiently and how do you capitalize when you're meeting new people how do you capitalize on a performer's strength you know Ruffalo may be good doing that and Scarlett can do this other thing so let's design the action around that Mm -hmm. how do you meet an actor and shape that into character which translates into stunts
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) here's the big spoiler alert, big secret, is those movies are based mostly around the stunt team because the availability of actors is so difficult. The cast of things, 32 principal actors on that show. So to get everybody in one place at one time is impossible. So you're piecemealing scenes together and using people when they're available and when the others aren't who is playing the character that they're, you know, acting opposite, even acting, even acting scene, the stunt doubles. And we did we, an extensive and exhaustive search, in, um, when and Monique Ganderton did it. It was awesome in helping, she's got a great eye for talent, but helping gather all these amazing stunt performers. Some have been, you know, with their actors for years, like Heidi Moneymaker has been with Scarlet since the second Iron Man. But then some, you know, kind of introducing for the first time, like this kid Chris Romrell, who was um, doubling Chris Pratt, and it's a phenomenal double. we found him flipping around in Utah. And so we just kind of found all these performers who made up the best stunt ensemble team that's ever been, I think, ever been assembled. And we leaned extremely heavily on them because as much time as we had to rehearse with, you know, Charlize for Atomic Blonde, you would get, you know, some of these actors would fly in the night before, sometimes the day of to do their scenes. So most of what you see in these movies is stunt performers. And he, there's there's some like like uh, Hemsworth is extremely talented. He could pick up a fight very quickly. Uh, Evans is also you know picks stuff up quickly. But then a lot of stuff you know when the when the mask goes down or when like the you know helmet goes on, stunt people take over. Right. And so the main challenge is finding a stunt team who can you know who's that good and can handle it. And also, you know, it's not just one stunt double. You know, because you've got second unit, you got splinter unit, you got a visual effects unit. So now, sometimes, depending on how the schedules go, you got three Captain Americas running around, and so you got to, you know, each one of them has to be of a caliber that you know that can kind of carry that torch of, of, of action that we've kind of established and so it was a crazy game of, of scheduling and fixing it and prep but then it was, you gotta be loose and flow, like we're team water sometimes you'd have actors who wouldn't be able to be there because there's a press conference over there. so now we switch the schedule and this, this scene that we haven't rehearsed yet because it was set up this way, we hadn't, you know, because it was just jam-packed with trying to keep up with the stay ahead of the action rehearsals we're like, now this one's up, and we're like, well, alright, well now here we go and the Russos are like that with, but they're very, um, very methodical. But they also like to go with the energy of like a scene, and it might change, and it might change completely from what's scripted or from what was planned, and you have to be ready to roll with the punches. So we would, for example, we'd be if we're doing a, an action scene, we'd show up on a, um, a stage, and our stunt riggers like to know you kind know, where the action's going to happen. And we be like, well. I'm gonna put the grid over the whole stage and put points in just about every spot because I'm not sure. It might be there, it might be over there. You guys gotta be ready for anything. And it was a really very flexible, fluid team that was just uncanny in their ability to adapt to changes and as the situations developed it was unbelievable. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more.
0: So when they needed us, we could fight the battles. That they never could. Let's move into the last portion of our conversation, talking about Dhaka. If it's okay? I'm so excited. The movie, correct me if I'm wrong, an Indian businessman who recruits a mercenary to find his kidnapped son. And it's a script by Joe Russo, which I was so impressed to see. And, yep. and it stars Chris Hemsworth, among, I'm sure, a fantastic cast. Thank you. When you first received the screenplay, I, if we've we talked about genre and story elements, but what about the film you saw as an opportunity to use stunts as a storytelling device? Not just a good story, but for you to have enough creative input on it.
1: I read the script, like Joe wrote it like 10 years ago, and I read the script probably five or six years ago. And it was, a different title took place in a different play. It was a similar story, but took place somewhere different. And then it went around different studios, bounced around. But when I read it, I really liked the character and the the, the pacing of the movie, and it was, it was it was a great script. And It came back around, and I both Joe and Anthony have been great mentors of mine, and we you know they allowed me to direct Second Unit on a lot of Infinity Wars, and then you know, to be the main Second Unit director on on Endgame, they would give me sequences like you know dramatic sequences, entire sequences of that movie. I got to direct. And I, I wondered at the time, why are they doing that? And I think a lot of it was just like, let's see if he can handle non action sequences. And so I guess I didn't screw up too badly. Um, I'd been mentioning I wanted to direct, I was going to direct, not that I wanted to, I was going to direct. And, you know, Joe wanted to be supportive of that. And he, once he got the right to the script back, he said, hey, I think, you know, DACA would be a good fit for you. And I was drawn to it because of the nature of the, the movie is, is very action driven but the action is is character driven and so it's like oh, that's a good a good way for me to kind of break in because people know me for action but it, the other thing about this the story that was so compelling was there was there's a lot of heart to it that a lot of times in action movies you kind of gloss over like or you can be just all about the action whereas I, I never wanted to do something that was just about the action I wanted to have some emotional resonance to the story and have a uh, you know, leave people feeling something when you left the cinema because those to me were always the most enjoyable movies is when you the action's good, but then the story is good and you, you feel something and you you're, you know go on a journey and go through changes with the character during that whatever 90 minutes, however long it becomes. Chris Hemsworth kind of became uh, interested in the script. We were talking when I was, you know, directing him on uh, the second unit, some of the stuff on Infinity Wars. We started kind of talking and put it out there that this thing was coming, and he, his people went, th- you know, to Joe, and it kind of it started to to a kind of snowball, and he, once he became seriously interested, it was it was kind of surreal because you know to go from just being a stunt double in 2014 on a winter soldier to meeting the russos and then you know them asking me to stunt coordinate civil war and then i get the second unit direct usually these steps take you know number of years and number of films and so to be able to uh, have the opportunity so quickly to advance like this and get to kind of where i wanted to go was was kind of mind blowing but my goal has always been to direct movies and tell stories and so it's kind of hard to you know, say no, and then you get a, a great script with a, a writer who's your, your mentor and friend, and then a, a great actor who you have a a great relationship with, and an opportunity to tell a story that you, you kind of are fond of. So I said yes, I will I will do it. The crazy thing was I to get it off the ground, it took like, two years because I first scout. When we were on Infinity Wars. I first scouted India and Dhaka, Bangladesh during our hiatus from between Infinity Wars and Endgame. It flew out there, and that was a year and a half before we started shooting. And you know, saw the locations, and we started talking with Indian production companies. And right up until the point that we started shooting and never really quite believed fully it was going to happen. It was always, because making movies is so hard, to get all the pieces together, get the finances, the actors, the deals, the location, everything to line up is a really hard thing to do. And it was always just kind of like, ah, oh, it might not happen. But then it, it did, it lined up, and then we get there in day one, and we start shooting, and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm directing a movie. It's, it's really surreal and to, to now be in the first week of post-production. Like we got through the first part of the process. We shot a movie. Yeah. In 58 days, we shot a movie. We have an entire movie. Now now the, the magic gets to like be implemented, and we get to go through all this footage that we shot and hopefully construct a story that is compelling and entertaining and, and people enjoy
0: I'm always interested in asking directors well, what were their biggest fear going into the project. Sucking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, tell not want the movie to suck. If you go to watch it and go, that's terrible! You suck! Uh, that's probably yeah, the
0: biggest... Uh, but how prefer. did your perception change from the first day of shooting, where you think the movie is going to be, to now that you guys are here and you're looking at the footage and you're like, okay, that's what we were meant to do all along. And it was a process of discovery.
1: Yeah, I was there's was always like three three or four different movies. There's the one that's gets scripted, the one that's in your head, and then the one that when you start shooting it becomes something else, usually entirely. And then you know, the fourth one is the movie that actually gets made in editing. That was one of the biggest challenges I think during production. Yeah. Was just being managing, you know, the give and take of ideas that would come from different whatever the actors or other sources and how how to put all implement all those things into the best possible version that you know everybody's going to be satisfied with.
0: Is it too early to tell people where and when they can go support the movie?
1: I've been told by Netflix that it's going to be uh, early 2020.
0: Okay, guys, so make yeah. sure you come back and at the end of the year, circle back. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more information. But again, I'm so excited about that. So, question, in regards to your relationship with the work to come. Uh, once again, quote of yours, quote, I consider myself an audience member. To me, success is being able to entertain myself and put out a product that when I watch, I can be proud of, close quote. So, Avengers Endgame opens next month. Mm. DACA, we said, early 2020. So what has the conversation been like with yourself for the last 14 years? Mm. And what kind of work are you most interested in pursuing following these two experiences to discover still untapped storytelling possibilities?
1: You got some great questions, man. Well, I'm proud of my body of work. I feel very fortunate to have been involved in some fantastic films. You know, not everybody gets those opportunities. I'm very aware of that and I'm thankful every day that I've made the choices I've made or been given the opportunities that I've been given because you can't work your way through this business on your own. People have to give you opportunities and you just have to be ready to capitalize on them. And I and I say that now when it kind of you know, that I'm in a position to help other people. I I open doors. That's that's all I do. I open doors. Then it's up to you, whoever that person is, to to walk through them and take the opportunity and, and run with it. And so I've been fortunate to have people before me open a lot of doors, and I was just at least ready to run through them. Who knows? I, I don't know. Like, this is my first, first directing job. Who knows if I stumble and fall on my face once I go through the door, but I was ready to run through and give it my best shot. And I feel like the, you know, the journey has been unbelievably fulfilling, and hopefully the, you know, the end result is as well but I feel that up until this point I'm very satisfied with the stuff that we've accomplished, and it's it's never just me. Nothing I've ever done, no movie I've done by myself. There's always at least one other person involved, usually hundreds more. So like, I've been on some great teams and great collaborative efforts, and I think that's part of the, um, the reason for my success. I've just been really fortunate to have worked with some really great people who've been supportive and have pushed me at the right time, kept me grounded. If I, for some reason, start to drift off and get too full of myself that's an important one for anybody out there listening is just surround yourself with the right people for the right reasons you don't make movies by yourself so surround yourself with a great team a great network of people hopefully the, the journey is as enjoyable as it has been for me
0: Sam you've been very generous for the time and I cannot wait for future projects thank you so much thank you, you very much, appreciate it And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Sam for sharing his time to record this episode and for his assistant, Shelby, who helped us set this all up. If you like the podcast, we ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Spread the word, as it seriously helps us bring you, month after month, conversations with new guests. So please, help us out. Thanks again. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access.